You're listening to an audio dispatch from No Borders Media. On this dispatch, we join the conversations and debates around resistance to Trump white nationalism with an interview with Arun Gupta, an investigative reporter and independent journalist based in New York City. In this discussion, we talk about sanctuary cities as sites of resistance to white nationalism, the current Occupy Immigration and Customs Enforcement actions, and the current state of anti-Trump politics in the USA. This interview was recorded on August 2nd, 2018. I'm on the line from New York City with Arun Gupta. Arun is an investigative reporter and independent journalist. Arun, welcome to No One's Legal Radio. Thanks for having me on today, Jogi. Arun, um, in this, on the show, we've been looking at the emergence of Occupy ICE and abolish ICE actions, and more generally, the resistance to Trump and the different forms it takes from from confronting uh, fascists, out-and-out fascists, to what are what are the potential paths to an effective resistance to Trump. And there's a lot of directions this can go, and we, we likely need a, a full hour, but we have a shorter time today. Um, where I want to start with is something that you wrote and speculated about just in the, in the weeks after Trump's uh, election and inauguration, which is the potential of cities, particularly sanctuary cities, as, as sites of resistance, as sites of... Um, of disobedience, of non-cooperation with, with the Trump agenda. So can you talk about, about that a little bit more? Yeah, so I, I think in a lot of ways, the entire arc of the right-wing project over the last 50 years has been a war on cities. And for one, I think uh, like liberals and leftists need to stop being so apologetic uh, that somehow they're elitists or smug. I, I do think there is a real problem with liberal elitism, but there should be no uh, apologies for being intellectual, for having a developed culture, for having people who are intellectually sophisticated and creative. And that's what really cities are all about. It's a, it's a place where you have just these incredible mixing of cultures, you know, whether especially places like, you know, New York and Los Angeles and Montreal, Toronto, uh, Vancouver, these are great global cities where you get these concentrations of population. It's, it's in cities where you see uh, the rise of women's movements uh, historically going back a century or more. Uh, it's where you see the emergence of uh, uh, gay lesbian culture in uh, around uh, World War I. Um, it's where you get just these phenomenal uh, immigrant uh, communities. Um, you know, New York City has uh, something like 150 different uh, distinct ethnic uh, communities. And, it, you know, Toronto is also remarkably diverse. And so what we see in terms of what the right has been doing, you know, it's it's an attack on women's rights. It, it's an attack on uh, uh, LGBT people being open to to being a part of the public sphere. It's it's an attack on on immigrant culture, and so one it's it's a recognition that cities are really under attack. But it's it's also the flip side of it is really uh, urban areas are where you find the the greatest creativity, and and not that I think I they should be crass about it. But at the same time, urban areas 
are also what produce uh, the culture. They produce the uh, economy in the U.S., uh, ten, the 10 largest urban areas, account for 40% of the GDP. Um, and so this is also where you get people who um, are, are going to be uh, – the concentration of people who are most against the right-wing agenda, most against this kind of uh, proto-fascistic agenda, certainly at minimum an authoritarian white nationalist agenda that you find uh, coming with, with Donald Trump. And what we've seen with, with ICE is a, a real ability of uh, cities to kind of put roadblocks um, up to uh, Trump's agenda. And part of that agenda is, frankly, ethnic cleansing. This is something I covered the 2016 election. And increasingly, as that uh, campaign went on, I kept I started saying, like, pay attention to what uh, Trump is doing, to what he says he's going to do. It should have been obvious from the moment he came down that gold escalator in June of 2015 and, and referred to uh, uh, Mexican immigrants as uh, rapists, drug dealers, and, and criminals, that he has a, a policy of, of ethnic cleansing. And so what we saw with the, what we've seen with the Abolish Ice Movement, the Occupy Ice Movement is really the first uh, concerted pushback against uh, that agenda. Of course, it came after this horrific uh, measure to separate uh, children uh, from their families, kidnap them, basically, and hundreds of them have been uh, disappeared uh, into the U.S. Uh, essentially prison uh, system. They, they haven't been returned to their parents. Um, so starting with Portland, there was this shutdown of uh, um, ICE offices that were actually throwing a wrench uh, into the works. It wasn't just rhetoric. It wasn't just protest marches. It was having an actual effect on the deportation machine. Uh, and then we saw it spread. And where did it spread? It spread to other cities, large and small, like New York City, Los Angeles, uh, Detroit, San Antonio, Tacoma. Um, those are the places where you have the most effect. Now, there is some complexity. I'll, I'll, I'll just finish this out. That some areas where you do have detention facilities are in small rural areas. And so uh, I've spent some time in uh, Oregon recently. Uh, I was covering the Occupy Ice movement out there in Portland. And uh, there are also really vibrant resistant movements where you do find um, uh, the ICE prisons. Uh, so in Sheridan, uh, Oregon, uh, in uh, an area called the Dolls, uh, there are really good uh, rural-based uh, uh, resistant projects uh, to the deportation machine. But the point is the city is you, you build where you have a base, you build where you have power. And, and that to me is the city's. Arun, one thing you referenced um, at the time was these solidarity cities that have been declared all over the U.S. Uh, for at least the last 20 years. It started in L.A. and moved on. And on one level, it seems symbolically kind of important for a, a city or a jurisdiction to say that they won't collaborate with uh, immigration enforcement. But another level, it seems like just a big scam by the Democratic Party to pretend like they're caring about migrant justice struggles, but they're not really doing the fundamental stuff that needs to be done to have true non-cooperation. So can you speak about that piece of cities as resistance, that is, the declarations of, of solidarity or sanctuary cities 
all over the U.S. and, of course, Trump's uh, attack on those uh, sanctuary cities. Yeah. So there, there's really, a, I think, a basic rule in how Democratic Party politicians operate from the local level to the national level, that they will stand up um, for things that are morally and politically righteous that they have no power over. So this, uh, when I was out in Portland, um, I would see these politicians, uh, local and uh, state, you know, like uh, elected representatives or county politicians come out to rallies and decrying uh, Trump's immigration policy, decrying what the Department of Homeland Security was, was doing. But they weren't talking about what was going on under in their jurisdiction, what they had uh, control over. And so in the state of Oregon, uh, this is according to an investigative report I, I saw, um, even though it's supposed to be a sanctuary state and, and Portland is a sanctuary city, there's still all this information sharing and cooperation going on with ICE. You know, this is what's, what's going on in Philadelphia, where the mayor has uh, been sending the police in to attack uh, repeatedly the abolish ICE encampment that was outside of the ICE office there or in San Francisco, the same thing happened. That people are uncovering uh, these contracts where these uh, liberal sanctuary cities are feeding information uh, to ICE uh, to, as part of the deportation machine. In Oregon, something like 17 different agencies have cooperated with ICE by giving them information over the, the last couple of years, even though they're not supposed to in any way, shape, or form under the uh, city's uh, sanctuary laws. And, and that is also their right. Uh, you know, they, Congress uh, hasn't compelled uh, local police uh, uh, departments or local governments uh, to force them to turn over this information. Uh, so they are under no obligation to do so. And if, you, and if their law is against it, then they're under a legal obligation to withhold that information. And yet you have something like 17 different agencies that have shared information. And then you have politicians coming to the rally complaining about Trump and Congress and, and, and uh, ICE and not looking at what's going on uh, right before them. So yeah, I, I think it is very much a way for Democrats to look like they're d doing something. And I think that has been really the power of the Abolish uh, ICE, Occupy ICE movement. It, it's to expose the hypocrisy of the Democrats and uh, to, to put them uh, on the hot seat to be like, hey, this is what you claim. And the reality is, is that you're helping uh, uh, this uh, white nationalist uh, deport uh, thousands of people uh, to their deaths. And, and, you know, that needs to be very much in the forefront. When these deportations happen, people die. They die sooner, they, they die quickly, or they die later. But a, a deportation is basically a death sentence. Arun, you've... Uh you're uniquely placed because you were there when uh, Occupy Wall Street took place. You, you helped launch uh, a newspaper effort at the time, and you happened to be there in Portland when the first Occupy ICE, Abolish ICE action took place. So share your, your perspective on this tactic and the, the reemergence of this tactic, clearly in a very different way, um, maybe, maybe even more 
meaningful now because of the fact that it's so targeted. But t- talk about Occupy, the Occupy movement in 2011 and the Occupy action now. Is it just simply the reusing of a word or is there a certain tactic, strategical um, uh, sentiment here that, that we need to be aware of? Yeah, um, you know, someone actually pointed out to me that I'm probably the only reporter who is at the beginning of Occupy Wall Street, um, uh, Occupy ICE, and then on top of that, uh, the Bundy occupation of the wildlife refuge in uh, uh, eastern Oregon that happened a a couple of years ago. So um, I don't know what it is. I seem to be I find myself in the right place at the right time with these occupations. So I, the Occupy Ice Movement, which did begin in Portland on uh, June 17th, was very much in the way vein of uh, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, you had the General Assembly, you had the mic check, you had the consensus-style uh, decision-making. Most of all, you had the camp uh, that was it's uh, a community. But uh, very quickly, I, w- uh, I went down for the first something like 17 days in a row and uh, hung out there. And I said, this is... Um, uh, occupy with a purpose. Uh, uh, what was uh, going on down there, as opposed to Occupy Wall Street? Because the whole thing about Occupy Wall Street was no demands, right? That was what it was kind of famous for. We're not going to make any demands because there's the idea if if you make demands, they're just going to be uh, rejected uh, anyway. And that had a, a, a great utility in helping the movement get off the ground. Now, there, there were actually um, uh, demands, you know, uh, uh, that uh, my partner and I, we went across the country and covered uh, 41 occupations in 27 states. And we found the same demands everywhere, like get money out, out, out of politics, um, was a, a, a big demand. Um, it was a, a that was universal, right? Um, but here the demand is much more specific and actionable, which is uh, to abolish ICE itself. Now, there's been some, you know, controversy over that in terms of, you know, where you have the liberals saying like, oh, that's going too far, which is absurd. I mean, these are uh, a deportation police. That's the only reason ICE exists. It's a new federal agency. It's only 15 years old. It's, It's not like this is somehow needed. It exists only to destroy lives, destroy families. Um, so that I think was a very important distinction uh, with Occupy Wall Street. But you know, walking through the Occupy Ice Camp in, in Portland, it it just struck me. It's just like this is it's almost like embedded now in the DNA of the left, particularly the anarchist left, because you saw the the whole thing. Just the you know you had kind of the hub of the center of life was the the kitchen that was the the largest area. Uh, you know, where you would have to have a prep area, you actually had stoves, they would have like a pantry, even coffee, tea station, uh, um, you had a medic's tent, uh, there was a children's area, there's uh, bathrooms, of, of, of course, it, w- it was 
like a little functioning village. Um, the other way it differed with Occupy Wall Street, a lot of the Occupy Wall Street encampments basically quickly became more almost social service organizations because a lot of <coughs> homeless people would understandably go there uh, because it was someplace safe. Uh, they were safe from police. Uh, they were able to put up structures um, that could last weeks or uh, even uh, months. But the problem is, is, you know, you get a lot of people there who were able to participate, you know, there's this myth that like all homeless people are somehow mentally ill or drug addicted when, when that's not true. I don't think even a majority are. And what we found in a lot of areas was, you know, that the uh, people without homes who are coming into the camp were often like the most knowledgeable about how to run the camps. But at the same time, cities like, you know, uh, we saw this in, in Portland and Seattle and, and San Francisco, that was one of the worst. Uh, the um, encampments became essentially shooting galleries for for people uh, to do drugs. This wasn't as much of an issue uh, in Portland, again, because it had a very specific for focus, which was that it was there to um, abolish ICE itself. Arun, the... Um the politics around uh, abolish ICE and occupy ICE are perhaps a useful microcosm of, of looking at anti-Trump resistance. Um, one way it's been described by one of the people I interviewed recently from Occupy Detroit is that you have, um, you have sort of grassroots organizers, you have progressives, and you have establishment Democrats. And um, those are sort of three streams of, of how resistance might play out to Trump. And I really hesitate to use the word resistance in referring to the establishment Democrats and this whole um, distraction of, of Russian collusion. I mean, maybe there was, maybe there wasn't, but it just seems like a huge distraction from real issues like like these Occupy actions or, or, or what's happening around trade or economy and what have you. So could you share your perspective on now that we're, um, you know, we're, we're well into the first administration of Trump, um, uh, what that resistance looks like? What are the fissures? What are the, what are the useful parts of it? Uh, are these efforts by Justice Democrats or DSA useful, useful efforts? Um, talk about your perspective on that. Well, you know, I, I wrote this piece um, back in 2015 before Trump, in May of 2015, before Trump even announced his candidacy. It was entitled, uh, the, the Only Article You Need to Read About the 2016 Election. And, and frankly, you know, I, I would encourage your listeners to, to look it up um, because what I was outlining in that was not any sort of like I had a crystal ball. It just, I had an understanding of how politics works, particularly in the U.S., because I've been covering it for over 25 years. And what I said uh, is that uh, it, over the last, since the late 60s, it's been clear there's been this pattern. When you have a Dem Democrat or Republican, they're obviously both managers of the uh, imperial state. They're, they're the chief executive officer of uh, capitalist globalization. But what you find when there's a Democrat in the White House that the left has a lot more room to maneuver um, because what you tend to get are 
uh, anti-systemic movements, right? When there's a Democrat in the White House, uh, people's over time start to wake up to the fact like, oh, it's not just one party or one personality that's a problem. It's the whole system that's the problem. So, uh, you know, with, with uh, Kennedy and Johnson, you have the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, second uh, uh, wave feminism, black liberation movement, and all the other similar movements. Um, with uh, Clinton, you had the, the global justice movement. With Obama, you got Occupy Wall Street, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, Dreamers, climate justice movement, uh, the low-wage workers movement, like Fight for 15. When you get a Republican in the White House, what you get are partisan movements. So while I think one of the few bright spots has been uh, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, and their explosive growth, um, I believe they're now closing in on 50,000 members, and they've gone from basically a do-nothing paper organization to where they are now actually engaged in, in serious political work, but a lot of their political work is around the elections. And while I think that can be useful at, at the local level, they are far from being able, they would, they would need a hundred times as many members um, to be uh, a serious force uh, nationally, and they would have to be much better organized. Um, so I don't think that you really see much of a genuine resistance. You know, when, when Hillary Clinton says she's part of the resistance, uh, that's no resistance. Uh, you know, I, electoral politics are, are no, no resistance. Now, I, I don't poo-poo them because if the Democrats were able to take back the House, that would put a serious check um, on Trump's power in a lot of ways. And I, I think it's also, frankly, important um, not to poo-poo uh, what's going on with, with Russia. Um, I think it's important not to be uh, Russophobic, to not give in uh, to this uh, anti-Russian hysteria. Um, but the reality is, is we destroyed Russia, right? And Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, you know, we, we destroyed Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and you saw the shock therapy. Uh, there was this dramatic seven-year decline in life expectancy. The only time you see a country, uh, an industrialized country's life expectancy decline is during war. And so that's basically what happened uh, to Russia post-Soviet Union. The West declared uh, war on it. Um, then you have Hillary Clinton, who is essentially supporting this uh, uh, protest movement uh, against Putin. Um, you know, what had come right after the Ukraine, where the U.S. supported this coup in Ukraine. So, and you had NATO pushing up to Russia's borders. So the thing is, it, that I think a lot of like leftists who are into like whataboutism and they're so anti-democratic party that they start to veer into becoming pro-Trump is that 
Russia had every reason to interfere in the 2016 election. It just made sense. We, of course, do it all the time. So what is so hard to believe that Russia is not trying to simultaneously destabilize the U.S.? And I think it, it does need to be taken seriously because I think what I've seen and I've talked to other reporters um, who left reporters who have been courted by Russia to be on RT, to be given jobs on, on Sputnik, is that there is this uh, systematic infiltration that is going on uh, throughout the American left. And I think uh, you have a lot of people who are essentially repeating uh, Russian talking points and if uh, the state talking points. And if you look at some of the coverage, um, uh, people have been uh, sending me coverage from uh, Sputnik. It is vile, viciously racist uh, and, and nationalist, um, anti-refugees. They refer to refugees as rape-fugees. Um, and these are the, the type of propaganda that is infiltrating the left. So I think this is, is a very dangerous moment for, for the left, and it needs it to uh, be much clearer that there is a destabilization process going on. That doesn't mean that there aren't a whole host of other issues like climate change, like trade war, um, uh, ethnic cleansing that are also incredibly important. But I, I don't think that we should be playing this um, game of discounting one issue at the expense of the others, because we're living in an era where we're seeing this global growth of ethno-nationalism and where these countries are joining forces like the United States, Russia, Israel, Turkey, India, um, and to a degree the Philippines, these authoritarian ethno-nationalist governments that are and Saudi Arabia that are finding kindred spirits in each other. So we shouldn't just uh, dismiss it outright. Arun Gupta, an investigative reporter and independent journalist um, based in New York City. And speaking to us from New York City, thanks for speaking with us on No One's Legal Radio. Great to be with you today. You are listening to a No Borders Media Interview with Arun Gupta, an investigative reporter and independent journalist based in New York City. We were discussing the current state of anti-Trump resistance to white nationalism. No Borders Media, based in Toronto and Montreal, is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.